I speak to you in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Some years ago, I took a trip to London, England, and I went to an extraordinary museum called the Cabinet War Rooms. These are the underground bunker-type offices that were used during World War II by Winston Churchill and the British government. They literally ran the country from these underground rooms during the Blitz while the city was being bombed. And as we were walking through, we saw a phone booth with a single receiver on a hook. It was explained to us that that phone had a direct line under the ocean all the way to America so that Winston Churchill could contact directly and securely Franklin Delano Roosevelt throughout the war. Friends, some of the most important conversations in Western civilization happened on that phone. We've just heard one of the most important conversations in the entire Bible between Jesus and the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. And indeed, this conversation itself might be one of the most important conversations in Western history. So let's take a look at it together. Well, first of all, it's an extraordinary conversation that in many ways should never have happened. And if you've heard a sermon on this text before or done a Bible study, you probably know some of this. They are in Samaria. Jesus is a man. She is a woman. They would usually not be talking in public. He is a Jewish man. She is a Samaritan woman. At that time, there was mutual distrust, a long-standing historic sibling rivalry between these two groups, and they didn't often associate. Finally, it says that it was the sixth hour. Little translation for you. That means it was 12 noon. Well, this is odd because normally people would draw water in those days, even today, draw water early in the morning or in the late afternoon, in the cool of the day. No one would usually draw water at noon in the heat and oppressive desert sun. So that was odd. But if you start to look at the conversation itself, notice how it starts with a sort of invitation to hospitality. You know, Jesus doesn't say, who are you? She doesn't say, why are you at my well? But he simply says to her, give me a drink. And the Greek is actually a verb, it's give me to drink. So it's sort of, would you help me quench my thirst? And so he is inviting her and inviting each other, if you will, into traditional Middle Eastern hospitality. And so we are reminded, right in the middle of this gospel, about how there are no barriers in Jesus. Or, if you will, he is always crossing and transcending divisions. We've said before that the gospel is a multi-ethnic, multinational, multi-class movement. There's that great hymn, In Christ there is no east nor west, in him no south or north, but one great fellowship of man throughout the whole wide earth. Galatians chapter 3, you've heard this before. For in Christ you are all children of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, what do they talk about? 
They talk about a lot. And if you will, they, they banter. They go back and forth. And, um, you know, this is the longest conversation, word for word, one-on-one, that Jesus has with anybody in the Gospels. And it's not with Peter. It's not with Pontius Pilate. It's not with Mary or Joseph. It's with the woman of Samaria. And they take up a multiplicity of topics. Well, the first topic that they take up is this question of water. And he says, give me a drink. And then it's living water. And she says, one of the great lines of the passage, sir, you have nothing to draw with. In a sense, she's saying, look, you don't even have a bucket. Um, It reminds me of a joke that I've told from this pulpit before. So if you'll permit me. Um, The joke goes like this. I was new in Chevy Chase, and I was walking down Connecticut Avenue. I was looking for the post office. I saw a young boy on the corner eating an ice cream cone. I said, son, could you tell me where the post office is? He said, yeah, sure. You just go up. It's on your left before the circle. You can't miss it. I said, son, thank you so much. That is so helpful. You know, I'm one of the new pastors at All Saints Church. You should come by on a Sunday sometime. I'll tell you one thing. We'll show you how to find Jesus. And he said to me, you don't even know how to find the post office. <laughs> okay, that's not a true story. But in the same way, the woman at the well says, you don't even have a bucket. And he said to her, well, I don't need a bucket because I have living water. And the living water that I give will well up inside of you so that you will never be thirsty again. What does this mean? What's underneath this here? Well, the living water represents grace. What is grace? Grace is unmerited divine favor. Grace is always a gift from God. It can never be taken. It must be received. Grace manifests itself in forgiveness and love and uh, the inculcation of the virtues. And grace, when it's received, does something extraordinary. It makes more of itself. That's what he means by saying it will bubble up within you like a spring. When you receive grace, you want to give grace to others. Friends, grace is the original renewable resource. So the living water is grace from God. What then is represented by the well? Well, there's this commentator that I quite like named Bishop Robert Barron. And he says, uh, working from previous traditions, that the well represents everything else that we seek in order to try to fill ourselves up but end up still being thirsty. These things that we go to day after day after day, you know, the bishop says, um, friends, you know what they are, you know what your well is, fellow sinners, I've got a well, you've got a well. These things that don't ever satisfy, yet they make us thirsty and thirsty, and we keep going to them again and again. So the goal is to trade the well for the living water, because the living water makes us never thirsty again. C.S. Lewis calls it the long, terrible story of human beings searching for something besides God that will make them happy. Well, notice then how the conversation switches from living water to this question of her husband. 
Verse 16, Jesus says to her, go call your husband. The woman answers, I have no husband. He says, you are right. You have had five husbands, and the one you are with now is not your husband. What's going on there? Well, friends, it's actually the exact same point which we've just been making. She's been trying the same thing over and over again, and it's left her unsatisfied. And you and I, at different times in our lives, or maybe even right now, have done the exact same thing. For her, it's a sequence of intimate relationships. For you and me, it might be something else. But notice that the same thing over and over and over again leaves her still thirsty. What is it that we put at the highest place in our lives? It's appropriate, therefore, that the last conversation topic that they take up is worship. They start talking about worshiping on the mountain. Did you catch that? You say, well, where does that fit in? Ah, worship comes from the word worth. Essentially, it means what is worth most to us? What do we put at the highest place in our lives? And if that's God, then we orient ourselves toward God as our highest good. If that's something else, then we orient ourselves toward that. There was a commercial campaign from the 90s for a soda called Sprite. And the commercial was this, obey your thirst. Anybody remember that? It's a very strange tagline. I thought it was rather silly, but in a sense, it's kind of profound. Obey your thirst. That's what a lot of us do. We obey our thirst. So it depends what is your thirst. Why is this story important for you and for me? What relevance does it have for our lives? I'll give you three ideas, and we'll try to move through these pretty quickly. Meeting, mission, and marriage. There are these three spiritual themes that are within this text. Meeting. Did you notice that Jesus meets her at her well? The beginning of the passage that we missed is that Jesus had to go from Jerusalem to Galilee, and there are a couple different ways to get there, but he chooses to go through Samaria, or it said he had to go through Samaria, maybe because he had to come to her well. She shows up where she is. And if you've been around All Saints for a while, you've probably heard me or Father BJ or someone say this famous quotation, God loves you so much as to meet you where you are. And God loves you way too much as to leave you there. Well, that's a perfect segue into the other M, mission. Because the story doesn't end at the well. She puts down her water jar and she goes back to her hometown and she starts telling everybody about this man that she met. Could he be the Messiah? Friends, the Christian life is not simply a statement of beliefs. The Christian life is a call. Sometimes it's a call to deeper self-discovery. Sometimes it's a call to adventure. Sometimes it's a call to mission and evangelism. And notice how she goes out because she's now been changed and she's been called. So that's mission. The third M, marriage. Now this is really interesting. I have to take you back into the Old Testament for a moment. What happens at wells in the Old Testament? Well, Rebecca finds the servant of Abraham at a well and is betrothed to Isaac. A little bit later, Jacob meets Rachel at a well and they fall in love. 
In Exodus, Moses comes to the well in Midian, and he drives away a group of bandits, and then he meets Zipporah, who becomes his wife. They fall in love. So all throughout the Bible, wells are places of betrothal and marriage. Ah, it all comes into focus. Jesus, in the New Testament, is often called the bridegroom. Have you ever noticed that? He's called the bridegroom. He's called the groom. So who then is the bride? Well, in a sense, the bride is all of us. And the bride is the church. Because Jesus, as the bridegroom, perfectly gives himself for the church and then draws, like a bride, the church to himself. So it becomes not just about living water, but it becomes about union. Union. Last thing. The living water is free. It's free for you, and it's free for me. But it wasn't free for Jesus. What were the last words that he said on the cross? Well, we know, looking at the Gospels and tradition, there are seven last things that he utters as he's being crucified. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have three of the statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus looks at Mary and John, the disciple whom he loves, and he says, here is your mother, here is your son. When he dies, he says, it is finished. But between those two statements he utters two words, I thirst. Dipso, the same Greek word that he uses in this conversation with the woman of Samaria. What does it mean? Friends, on the cross, Jesus was literally wrung dry in body, mind, and spirit. In order to produce the living water for us, he had to become as barren as a desert. They pierced him in the side, blood and water flowed. And so he was poured out for your sins and my sins and for the sins of the world. He became dry that we could be filled. He became thirsty that you could be quenched. And on the third day, when God raised him up from the dead, it was in a garden, covered as it were with the dew of the morning of resurrection. New life, resurrection, new creation. Give me this living water, says the woman of Samaria, that I may never be thirsty again. She is all of us. She is the church, and the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Thanks be to God. Amen.